Thanks for checking in on this podcast. You are about to hear an inspirational teaching from Caris Ministries. If God has used this ministry to bless you in any way, please take a moment and write to us at amenatcaris.org. We are always inspired and blessed to hear how God is blessing people all over the world through what he is doing here at Caris. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at caris.org so we can continue making podcasts such as this available free of charge. As we hear your word, Holy Spirit, enter into us. Fall on us afresh. Come upon us in a unique way. We pray that, Lord, you will grant us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. That the eyes of our hearts being enlightened, we will know the hope of our calling. We will know the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. And we will know, Lord, the power that is at work towards us who believe. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Those of you who are joining us for the first time, either watching us or here, a grand subjects, the Bible. That's what we are treating. And then why the Bible? Is the Bible the word of God? Or there's something else we can look up to? And if there's if it's the word of God, on what basis? Why do we think it's the word of God? And I spoke about how the Bible, because it's God's word, it is inspired. Because it is inspired, it it has credibility. It's authentic. All right. And then I also went on to talk about because it is inspired, because the Bible has the supernatural power of God, what the Bible says. Okay. So the historical records of the scriptures are reliable, are faultless, infallible. And then I also spoke about the archaeological records. And I spoke about how it's infallible. Last week I went on how to speak about how it's infallible and inerrant. So the difference between infallibility and inerrancy of scripture. I tried to make a, a little distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then part of the reasons why I say one of the reasons why the Bible is inspired is the fact that um, the Bible itself says that it is God's word. You remember? So that's one of the reasons why it's inspired. It says, the man is saying that I am sick. You also say, no, you are not sick. The man is saying that I got the job. You also say you have not got the job. You understand that? So, um, the Bible's own witness, its own testimony, that is God's word. And I, as I said, there are over 2,000 references in the Old Testament alone where it says that God said, that says the Lord, that says the Lord. In the New Testament, there are a few, there are instances where he said, in fact, Jesus said, the words that I speak, my father who sent me gave me these things that I'm telling you. And the New Testament is fraught with statements of Jesus Christ. All right, so... Um, the internal witness that it's God's word, last week, Spoke about the scientific accuracy of God's word. I mentioned it the week before and last week also. I saw the scientific accuracy of the word of God. Science is catching up with God's word. <laughs> there was a, a scientist, great scientist called Herbert Spencer, 1903. He said, 
everything must fall into one or more of five categories. It must fall into time. Everything that exists must fall into time. It must either it must have time, time attached to it, time or force or space or matter. By the first statement of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That alone, the statement fills all this five. In the beginning, time. God, force, created action. The heavens, space, and the earth, matter. <laughs> Praise the Lord. It's, it's, it's scientifically accurate. Where, As I told you, Years before Jesus was born, called Kepler. Kepler said there are 1,022 stars. And then later on, another scientist also disproved him that there are 1,056 stars. Then another, another 400 years later, another well-respected scientist. This was all... His own, I think, 280 or so. He said that there are 1,054 stars. And that was the scientifically accurate knowledge of the time. Science accepted it as final. And in those times. Then 1610, you found out that there are billions of thousands of millions of stars. Before they discovered all that, Jeremiah chapter 33. I like Jeremiah 33, 3, some of you know it. But Jeremiah 33 verse 22, look at what the Bible said. Now, Jeremiah was written far before all those people. Let's all read it together. What does it say? As the host of heaven cannot be. One more time. For the last time. What does that mean? You can count the host of heaven. Jeremiah lived about... 1,500 years before Kepler. Kepler, the scientist who first counted the stars. And it was a scientific. So what the point is, if Jeremiah was writing with the knowledge of the day, even though Kepler was far advanced, he should have said, as they, but how did Jeremiah know that he can't count the stars? It must be God. The one who made it tell, said he can't count it. <laughs> Does that make sense? The one who made it say you can't count the stars. So, uh, so when it comes to star, when it comes to the evaporation system, when it comes to the fact that the earth rotates round or the earth spins on its axle or the earth is round. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 22 says that God who sits on the circles of the earth. Right. How would Isaiah know? Isaiah was 2,000 years before Christ was born. I mean, that's a long time. I'm talking about 4,000 years ago. Just think about how old you are. Yeah, just think about and I think um, I've forgotten the date. I think in the not 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 less than less than four hundred years ago, it was discovered that the earth, the globe was round. The earth was round. Just about less than five hundred, about five centuries ago. But Isaiah said four thousand years ago that the earth is round. How did he know that? Because those days they say if you travel on the streets of Gibraltar, you fall over. Isaiah knew this. Years before science discovered this. Obviously, if he was talking with, based on the knowledge of the day, like Moses said things that, as I quoted last week in um, Acts chapter 7, 22, that Moses was well trained in all the learned, in the, all the wisdom and the knowledge of the Egyptians. So if he was writing things based on the knowledge of those days, he couldn't have said some things he said, which later science discovered. 
that must be God. Yeah. Right? So it's scientific statements. Statements scientific. It's not a science book, but at least everything it says is accurate. It's, in, it's scientifically accurate. I remember when I got born again, my early days in Christian, my pastor was preaching and he says that, isn't it interesting how big, big, elder, old, intelligent scientists went to the moon to go, the first, when they went to the first, was to go and look for God. Went to the moon to go and look for God. Whilst even a little child knows God is not in the moon. <laughs> that was a very funny way to put it. Praise the Lord. So science is catching up with the Bible. All right. So it's scientific Accuracy. Alright. It's a fact. It points us to the fact that this book is supernatural. And then the unity of the Bible. That's a very serious thing. That's what I want to talk about now. And then possibly the prophecies of the Bible. And the transforming power of the Bible. The unity of the Bible. When we talk about the unity of the Bible. What theologians mean is that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It speaks with one voice. Speaks with one voice. But it doesn't matter. It does. I'll explain why it does. First of all, for you to appreciate the unity of the Bible, you have to understand the complexity of its diversity. In the first place, let's talk about the book itself. It's made up of 66 books. Over 40 authors. Very interesting. Over 40 authors. Some of these authors were... I mean, most of them were from different backgrounds. Different backgrounds. So, you're talking about over 66 books with different authors. <laughs> but the interesting thing is the, the diversity of the authors, their background. Some of them, the language, the Bible was originally written in three different languages. Right? Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Over three different continents. So someone is on one continent writing something, another one was on one continent writing, another person was on one continent writing. The interesting thing is that they are, some of them never knew about the other. Because, listen, at least we know a little bit about Queen Victoria, what we've been told so far about Queen Victoria. Am I right? These guys who wrote the Bible, the time they lived framed from over 1,600 years. Someone wrote something thousand years ago, and you don't know the person. You have never seen. You don't know about their anything. You don't know their background. You don't know. It. And then you also write, and both of you seem to be saying the same thing. And you are not talking about only about forty people different. Some of them there's time span six and thousand six hundred. Some of them thousand years. Some of them eight hundred. Some of them hundred years. Different, different, different. And some of them from different backgrounds. Some of them were shepherds. Some of them were kings. So there was one scribe. One former Pharisee, one tax collector, a prisoner, one doctor. Some of them were goat herders. Some of them were cup bearers. There were two kings. Some of them, and even where they lived, some lived in caves. Some rose from palaces. Some rose from prisons. Ah, this is too tight. The complexity of the diversity was very great. And yet, with all these different backgrounds, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It speaks with one voice. One message. One, one theme of the scripture about one main object of the Bible. Jesus. One origin of human, human beings. Yeah. 
They don't, one doesn't say uh, this woman was born from this one. Even though he was writing from prison. That I was writing from cave. Some were writing from caves. <laughs> Deserts. When someone is writing from a prison, someone is writing from a desert. Another person is writing from a cave. And then someone, another person is writing from um, the palace. And one, if someone who is a fisherman, uh, someone is a doctor, another person is a lawyer, and they are writing, obviously there will be some differences. And it's true. And all of them wrote, and it's not that like they consulted each other. Different, different things, and yet the Bible speaks with one voice. Okay, I'm going to say one voice. One say one voice. One it has it's one voice, one message regarding the origin of man, regarding the plan of salvation. It doesn't have two plans of salvation. <laughs> From Genesis to Revelation, one plan of salvation. Okay, it speaks about one people of God. It speaks about one story of uh, human history, one problem of mankind, and one solution to that problem of mankind, one standard of uh, morality, one design for the family, one chief object of its message, and without contradictions. So if you look at the diversity of the Bible itself, let's talk about the storyline of the Bible. Okay. It has over 3,000 cast members. Over 3,000 cast members. I'm talking on the storyline. The Bible has got 1,189 chapters. It has got 31,000 verses. You need about 700,000 words. Over 3.5 million letters. This complexity, yet one message. Think about it. It doesn't contradict itself. And united in its one message. So it has an amazing unity in the midst of complex diversity. That must tell you there must be one author behind it. That's the point I'm making. I like the way a certain man of God put it. It's just, it's just like, let's say, in the United Kingdom, the central government asks that every local government should look for the unique sandstone or the unique rock wherever they are, and take a part, you know, bring a chunk, put it on a trailer, move it to uh, every, every local government. So you can imagine the number of local governments. Everybody is bringing. They are bringing from Scotland, bringing from Wales, bringing from Southampton, bringing from the Midlands, the West, South, East, bringing all and assembling them in, let's say, Westminster. Rocks, they bring it, Buddhists, they bring it, different, some are to some are granite, some are whatever, you know, they bring it all together, and some came with different shapes, some came uh, like oblong shapes, squares, trapezium, or whatever, different, different shapes, and they bring it, and then they arrange, somebody arranges all these stones that, this one was cutting down, this one were cutting down, everyone cut down, they bring the pieces together, and they arrange it, and it forms a replica of Buckingham Palace. Ah, there must be a, a designer behind it who was overseeing and supervising how they are cutting it, how they are shaping everything, bringing it together, arrange all, and it forms just one replica of Buckingham Palace. Ah, there must be somebody behind it. There must be somebody behind it. God is behind the book. God Himself. And I said it last week briefly about how someone says that it's like 
If you say the Bible was written by some men, they decided they were different. It's just, or it's just a work of chance. It's just like saying that there was a blast in a print shop, and all the letters fell on the ground. It neat, neatly ended up forming the Oxford Dictionary, English Dictionary. No errors, nothing. Everything fell. I mean, it's, it's, you can't just say that. Someone must be behind that book. And there's one author behind the Bible, and what's his name? God. I think you should clap for God. And so the unity is amazing unity in spite of the complex diversity. It's unity in diversity is beautiful. Beautiful. Someone say beautiful. And then the next point I want to make besides the unity of the Bible is, is transforming power. Transforming power of the Bible. Thank you, Holy Spirit. When we talk about is transforming power, it's a, we, we actually are talking about it's the residue the Bible leaves behind on the minds of people. <laughs> As I said, I heard the pastor say this after it, and it blessed me. He said the, the, the beauty of the Bible is that it's not that I read the Bible. The Bible reads me. It's transforming power. And okay, let's say you go to all the great galleries around the world and anything that was designed based on the scriptures, the Bible. Let's pull it down. You end up losing more than half of the, the finest arts of our world. <laughs> Talk about music. Talk about law. Let's say every, let's go through every law. Any law that was founded based on the scripture. Let's take it away. You see the chaos that civilization will enter. is powerful. It's influence on civilization. Look at what America is and United Kingdom is. Because of the influence of the Bible. Some of you grew up in certain schools or you attended um, primary schools and some schools and homes where in your, in your lowest moment, they let them sing one hymn. It cheers you, it stirs you up. You hear some hymn, it reminds you of something. Look, look. Every major event, you need one of the hymns or something. I don't like Christmas. But you see, have anyone yet composed a very good song that can match the, these old Christmas songs? Away in the manger, oh little town of Bethlehem. You know, it does something to your spirit. How sweet the name of Jesus. Bring on those other songs. And everyone knows that these songs are different. I mean, you know it. You know, it's amazing. The transforming power of the Bible changes communities, changes nations. I believe, I believe very strongly that had it not been for the Bible, there are certain nations would have turned into chaos. It's just the influence of the Bible in the land. They say things like the Bible was the white man's invention. White man invented it to keep the masses subjugated, to control their mind. So they are, they are killing you, they are maltreating you, they are subjugating you, and yet you are laughing because they have given you some kind of false hope by the Bible. The white man created the Bible to subjugate. Jesus said something. He said, light has appeared in John chapter 3. But because the works of men are evil, John chapter 3, verse 17, 18, 19, somewhere there. He said, this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than, do you know why? 
That is why people are quick to latch on statements like that. They are quick to, not because of intelligence. Because they don't have hardcore evidence. But they kind of prefer that one. Ah, ah, I like that. So that it can excuse their immorality or evil deeds. Jesus said, light has come. But because men's work are evil, they say, take the light away. Hey, the light is not true light. This one is just called, it's fake, it's fake. They have to find something to say there's not light. Let's stay in the darkness. The more the laws are changed to try to marginalize the influence of scripture, the more chaos we see in our communities. A house, a marriage that is founded on God's word is bound to stand the test of time. One man of God said something some time ago. He said, sometimes, if people are being fundamentally Christian, they wouldn't need mediation in their marriage. Somebody come and see them that, oh, why? So why are you slapping this one? I mean, hey. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying marriage counseling is not good. It is because I'm a pastor. It's necessary. But that man said this years ago. It struck the chord in my spirit. If people are being fundamentally Christians, all right, you're just living based on scripture. You'll find it easy to forgive and move on. Or you, you'll be able to. You, you'll be able to because scripture is what dictates your life. You won't judge people. It's just easy. The reason why people get shocked when they find out there are some things in church because they expect that at least, at least church we should be live our life based on scripture. Because people expect their standards of scriptures are impeccable. Flawless standards of scriptures. So people assume that anyone in church is automatically living based on scripture. So then they come to church, they see one or two, say church people are hypocrites. No, you are the hypocrite. Because before you say church people are hypocrites, who are you? Wherever the scriptures passes, it's like when lime scale, or there's so much lime scale, or whether there is lime scale in the water, you, you see it's residue it leaves on the kettles and the washing machine and the irons and stuff. You see it because the water has calcium. In the same, if there's iron in water, it will leave after a while you see it on the, the rocks or something. And then and then if there is if there is iron, if there is something else, whatever element there is in the water, it has what it leaves. I like what I said. It the residue it leaves on the minds of people. I always question someone who will finish reading the Bible for one hour and finishes. Okay, now let's, I'm going to fight. <laughs> you, you, wait, let me finish my morning devotion. <laughs> Read, finish reading. Now come, you are telling me I should forgive you. Me, I should forgive you. Let's go to the prophecies of the Bible. I will speak a bit more about this when I come to the, um, the morality of the Bible. Let me try and see if I can get to the prophecy. Is someone learning something? Yes. Or you are being bombarded on the streets of London and United Kingdom with all kinds of arguments and attacks against the scripture. Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that you have to be willing to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Is it 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, verse 15? Says, be prepared and be willing to give a reason for the hope. They ask you why you believe. The reason why we believe in the Bible is, is not because our grandfather, our grandparents gave it to us. But it's because there are reasons to believe. Yeah. It's our, as I keep saying, our faith is a reasonable faith. Everything you do in church, 
everything you do in your life, Christian life, and we do in church, if you can't find a reason for doing it, please forget it. It doesn't matter how good it seems to be working. Anointing oil can work. It works. But if it's working and you can't find reason in scripture, I advise you, get rid of it. If you can't, if you don't have a scriptural reason, the fact that something works doesn't mean it's right. Or that doesn't mean it's sound or it's authentic. Do you understand? Yeah. Uh, that, that's very important, especially we the uh, Pentecostal and Charismatics who are experience driven. <sighs> I felt something. <sighs> oh, God is there. God is there. I felt something. But besides the experience, we must have facts, factual, intelligent reasons why we do what we do. Why do we talk about forgiveness of sins? Because the sins have been tetelest die. Someone paid for the sins. So there's grounds for God to forgive me. That's why he said he is faithful and just. Those, those two words are very strong. All right, prophecies of the Bible. There are over 1,800 prophecies in the Bible. What are prophecies? Prophecies are pre-written history. It's only God who knows the future, so he says things before they happen, or pre-recorded history. They are recorded before they happen. History tells you what has happened. Prophecy tells you what will happen, and they happen. God called Abraham. Look at Genesis chapter 22. Let's, let's get into a text. Verse 17, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants, your descendants as the stars of heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because you have obeyed, obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned home. In Genesis chapter, let's just look at 17 instead, please. Verse 3. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Now listen, at the time God was telling him this, he was childless. And God told him, you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make nations, nations of you. And kings shall come from... This is a, a barren man, a, a childless man. Look at what... Listen to what God was telling him. So, sister, brother, you don't have a problem. Believe in God's word. He said, I will make... Nations of you, kings shall come of you. I will establish my covenant between me and, watch this, and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants. He was not leaving his descendants out. And your descendants after you. Also, I I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. All the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession and I'll be their God. Did you see that? God spoke about, and these things came to pass. Childless Abraham. Now watch this. There are too many prophecies about which God spoke and were fulfilled. Only Jesus alone. Jesus alone. There are hundreds of prophecies about him. Concerning him. And in his just first coming alone, more than half or so of prophecies were fulfilled about him. Can you imagine? Bible talks about this one, Cyrus. 
God speaks about 100 years before the man was born, spoke about this guy is going to be king. Would you want to try it? Who is going to be the, the prime minister of this country or the next 20 years? Would you be able to mention his name? Hundred years before Cyrus was born, God said, this guy is going to be king. Hundred years. The prophecies of the Bible. But Jesus Christ's own is amazing. Let's read Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. For your information, please let me just throw this in. For your information, Isaiah lived 2,000 years before Jesus was born. 2,000 years. A very old man. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Alright. Let's all read the Allah. Let's, go, let's read from the screen. The Lord will give, will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Did this happen? Yes. 2,000 years before Jesus was born. His name, his name was prophesied. A virgin. At least, that would be very strange for a virgin to be born. Watch this. There were prophecies about his birth, the place he was born, Bethlehem. There were prophecies about when he was born, children will be murdered. Let's look at something. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, 17. And were there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Who spoke it? Who spoke it? Who spoke it? Through the prophet. All right, saying, out of Egypt. Jesus, years before he was born, it has already been prophesied that I'll call him out of Egypt. Look at verse 17. When you read the Bible, you keep saying, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, read, read the next verse, uh, verse, verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, with the children who were murdered. Do you understand that? Jeremiah said it years before Jesus was born. Years before, verse 23, look at verse 23. You always come across this scripture, this statement, and it was, that might be fulfilled. And he came and dwelt in a, a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, he shall be called a Nazarene. <laughs> Hallelujah! Amen. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's his full name. Yeah. Jesus Christ, or Jesus by Joseph. When he was born, was prophesied. Who gave birth to him was prophesied. His name was already prophesied. Where he grew up was prophesied. The kind of death he died, death he died was prophesied. It was prophesied that one of his close allies would betray him. It was prophesied that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. It was prophesied, and it was fulfilled. It was prophesied that he would die on a tree. It was prophesied that he would be buried. He would make his grave with the rich. Look at Isaiah. Isaiah talks about Isaiah 53. He was wounded. He was bruised for our transgression. He was like a, a lamb taken to the slaughter. He didn't, he didn't rebel. Hundreds of prophecies about Jesus Christ and about his death. And, and you know, one funny thing about it, most of these prophecies were fulfilled not by his friends, but by his enemies who stand to lose more. Yeah. The prophecies of the Bible. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. John 19, 28, it talks about how, and after the Jesus, knowing that all, all things were now accomplished. Did you, did that, that statement is loaded. All things were now accomplished. That the scriptures might be fulfilled, he said, I test. Even the things he said on the cross fulfilled the scripture. And not that he was saying it to fulfill scripture. But it's already been said. And he came to fulfill the scriptures. He said, I test. And then they gave him uh, vinegar. And then verse 30 says that when he finished drinking, he said that the last time, it is finished. And he gave, bowed his head and gave up the ghost. John chapter 19, verse 36. Look at verse 36 quickly. Put it on the screen quickly. Verse 36. 
For these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones were. Even in his death, the man was dying and fulfilling scripture. When he died, normally they would break their bones. But they didn't break his bones because the scriptures were saying that not his, none of his bones were broken. In Psalms, the prophets have already prophesied that his bones will not be broken. They prophesied that they will bury him. Normally, if you die on the cross, the next thing is they, they take you and throw you on the Gehenna where the rubbish is. Or most, most of those who die on the cross are criminals. So their family members don't want to identify with them. So most of them are rejected. So it's the government's job to just throw them away. How come someone die on the cross ends up being buried in a rich man's tomb? <laughs> Hallelujah. It was prophesied already. In Acts, let me finish this in Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 21. In Acts chapter 2, verse 21, I like this. Hallelujah. Amen. Someone say Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It says, shall come to pass whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's go to verse 22. Men of Israel, hear this way. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself knows. He, watch this, verse 23. He, being delivered by what? The determined purpose and the foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death, uh, who God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw that his resurrection was fulfilling scripture. It has long been spoken. And those who killed him, they said that God has determined right I said it just wicked men will kill him. Yeah. Look at Acts chapter 4, last scripture. Ah, I feel the Holy Ghost here. Somebody shout hallelujah. hallelujah. Shout hallelujah. hallelujah. Somebody's having an encounter with God. Somebody's having an encounter with God. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. It says that the, uh, this is the, the apostles, when they were praying from verse 24, it says that when they were let go, they went back to their company, they lifted up their voices and prayed to God, and they said, Lord, um, so when they prayed, and this is the content of their prayer, verse 25, quickly follow, let's go with, go with me, verse 25 said, God, you said by the mouth of your servant David, why did the nations read and the people plot a vain thing? They plotted, okay, go to the next verse. Oh, oh I just even remembered about Judas, how Judas was a prophecy. Jesus was a, he said, my, the, my ally, the one I, I eat bread together, lifted his heel against me. And it was said years before Jesus was born. Years before Judas' grandparents were born. Go to the next verse quickly. The same chapter 4. All right. He said, the kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Verse 27. For truly against your holy servant Jesus Christ, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do what your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. The prophecies about Jesus. So when they were killing him, they were fulfilling prophecy, even though they were his enemies. The prophecies of the scriptures. Amazing. That's why I believe in prophecies. So, so, when, because of my time, from all the points I've been making, the unity of the scriptures, all right, so far, the transforming power of the scriptures, the prophecy of the scriptures, it's a point start to the fact that the Bible is not just an ordinary book. You read other books and you, you doze up. You read the book, this book, and something begins to happen in your inside. Something begins to jack up in your inside. The superior morality of the Bible 
Did you receive something? <laughs> Shout hallelujah! Shout hallelujah! Did you receive anything? Thank you for listening. For more resources, please visit caris.org or call us on 0207-740-9960. God bless you.